I'm Alexis Dion. And I'm Chelsea. And we're the co-hosts of High Priority, a podcast where we ask industry experts the tough questions about the past, present, and future of the cannabis industry. All right, Chelsea, I think it would be an understatement if I said that I was extremely excited to talk to today's guest, Khadija Tribble. I agree. She is definitely a BFD in this industry. (laughs) Yes. Um, I don't know. Like, did you know about Khadija before starting, like, really working on the accounts or... Did you only like learn about her once you started to like? Well, get I've actually been working on the Curaleaf account before Khadija was um, appointed. So I've been reading all the stuff about Rooted and Good, which we'll get into later, and all the um, CSR initiatives that she's really spearheaded and how she's kind of uh, pioneered this framework for CSR within the industry. Now all the MSOs are doing it. So I mm-hmm. was floored when Khadija was like, yeah, I'll come on high priority. I was like, what? Us? <laughs> us? Little old us? Uh, yeah. No, it's been kind of cool just kind of seeing and hearing about her. Um, I started on the Cure Leaf account at the top of this year, but I knew of Khadija um, last year just like hearing from you all and like our other coworkers about the the various projects that she's doing in the CSR realm for cannabis. And I think it's also kind of amazing to see that there's a black woman that's so high up at an MSO like Curaleaf. Um, You don't really hear that, right? Like, first of all, just women in C-suite industries in general is is not a is not a big thing like i think there was a particular um stat that i saw that said 29% globally 29% of all senior management roles were filled by women in 2021 um and then black women specifically just in the US alone they only hold 1.6% of vice president roles and 1.4% of C-suite roles. And that's according to entrepreneur.com. Double yikes. Yeah, not great. Not not, not awesome. Not, not great. Um, and given what we know about cannabis, these stats are usually more dismal in our industry. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that MJ Biz came out with a minorities and women report at some point last year, but they they saw a decline in female executive representation. Um, How? What is happening? I don't know. backwards. (laughs) I don't know. So um, (sighs) let's see. It's down 22% compared to 36.8% in 2019. So not great. Um, Khadija is uh, among the few female leaders in this industry and definitely among an even smaller group of black female leaders with this in this industry so i think it's so um important and impactful that she's coming on here because she is working at this enormous mso that's really creating standards for how these businesses should be run Agreed. Um, these numbers alone just make me want to shake my head like all day. Um, like, I don't surprised? really understand. <laughs> like, 
like how are we going backwards? I thought we were being progressive. And especially like in the cannabis industry where people assume that because it's cannabis, we're so much more progressive, so much further along. But no, that's why we have our podcast, because clearly there's some work that needs to be done, right? And then just like looking at all of her accomplishments, I mean, Khadijah, my God, like she is a board member or was a board member for the United Medical Center, also a board member for Changing Perceptions. She's been featured in USA Today, Forbes, Harvard Health, not to mention she is a Harvard University graduate. Um, Khadijah was appointed vice president of CSR, of Cure Relief in 2020. And most recently, she's been promoted to senior vice president. So, I mean, this this lady is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I, I think there's that component. And she um, also has like a tie to the war on, war on drugs herself. Um, she gave a TED Talk before she started at Cure Relief, but really about how... Um, her family members um, have really carried the burden of, you know, lasting impact of cannabis prohibition. She's also from the South. Mm -hmm. And so this is just a mission that's really important to her because she has been working with marginalized communities for such a long time. And cannabis is kind of the, the next iteration of this lifelong goal of hers. Exactly. And I'm really excited to see what else she has in store. I feel like she's one of those people that just has like a bucket list of things she wants to accomplish in this space. And I'm really excited to hear um, the different initiatives and goals that she has for her, not only for herself as the senior vice president of CSR, but just personally, because I, f- I feel like she's one of those people that you just, you really have to like tap into her brain and like see what she really is about. So I'm really excited to jump in and talk to her. Welcome, Khadijah. You are widely considered as uh, one of the leading voices in social equity and corporate social responsibility within the cannabis industry. So as someone who spent the first half of their career in public health, nonprofit, and advocacy roles, can you point to a specific moment or experience that prompted you to bring your skills to this cannabis industry? Sure. Before I jump into that, let me just say, Alexis and Chelsea, uh, thank you so much for being brave, brilliant young women, unafraid to tackle some of these tough issues, asking nuanced questions. Uh, I just want to encourage you guys to continue doing that. I meant what I said off camera. I'm proud that, you know, there are women out there doing this kind of work at such a young age. So what prompted me? So yeah, so I spent the first half of my a career in politics and public health, public housing, public mm-hmm. education, all public stuff. And I was like, we're not moving the needle at all, right? Mm-hmm. The the issue of poverty and the issue of inequities in health and education and wealth are still as present today as they were 20, 30 30 years ago, and there's been a significant investment of public dollars from government programs to help move the needle on uh, black and brown communities. Uh, and when I when I realized from my own personal experience and as a board member of an organization called Changing Perceptions that works specifically with returning citizens, that the collateral consequences associated with being connected to a cannabis arrest an incarceration or a conviction are like generational. 
right? The fact that a person, a child who is born into a family where a grandparent, not his or her or their parent, their grandparent Mm -hmm. has a cannabis related offense that they are three times more likely to live in poverty. That is ridiculous. And so the moment that I realized that we were trying to do this in an individual way, oh, if we take this family, we wrap around these supports and give them this kind of subsidy, we're really gonna be able to move them out of poverty. When in fact, there needed to be some systems interruptions and the replacing of systems. And that's when I was like, oh, I need to retool. Because mm-hmm. I, I learned one way to address these huge issues and they aren't working. So I went to the Kennedy School. I, this little Southern Black girl, got accepted to Harvard. Uh, and so and I got accepted and I go there and uh, talk about weed for 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave me the framework I needed to be able to understand, like, what is going to interrupt systems of poverty. And so that is why I'm in cannabis, uh, because I believe this is the the industry that might allow us to really make some inroads into uh, interrupting poverty. Mm. I love that. Yeah. And I think since we're still on the topic of like your earlier days, I kind of want to dive a little deeper into that. So while you were pursuing your master's in public administration at Harvard, You founded the Marijuana Policy Trust and Marijuana Matters, which is still obviously advocating for equitable cannabis reforms on Capitol Hill. But what were the most, would you say, consequential lessons you learned in and out of the classroom that prepared you to create the framework for these two organizations? Uh, That most of us uh, didn't don't realize that diversity and equity and inclusion are three different things, right? We lump them together, DEI. But in order to create equity, there is there has to be intentionality of the outcome, right? We spend a lot of time on uh, getting uh, equality of access, which is great, right? We do need to open up access and we need to create equal opportunity for access. But if we wanted to create equity in the outcomes, meaning you put something in and it's going to be likely that African-Americans, women, people of color, folks with a disability are going to have the same outcomes as privileged white males, then that is where, that's the difference, right? And so that's one of the things that I've learned in the Kennedy School, right? Really understanding how to tease out those differences and to understand that there are different levers to pull to get diversity, to get equity, and to make sure that something is inclusive, right? How do we how do we look at the othering of things? Um, and the other thing, and this isn't going to be popular, and I'm sure I might get some hate mail, was was <laughs> that um, um, progressive politics can be hurtful to communities of color when individuals have ideas about um, what does it take to move the needle, let's say on education. And when you as a progressive privileged person, whether it's your male, your, your gender that makes you privileged or your money or your race, or when you were born, born when, you, when you step into a space and you say, hey, I have some ideas about what's going to work for, for the other, 
but those others aren't centered and you haven't made space for them, your ideas aren't necessarily the ideas that uh, would move the needle for those folks. And progressive mm-hmm. ideas are good ideas, right? The idea that we can uh, have family leave, that is an amazing idea and we should have it. But mm-hmm. if you only think about it in the context of let's make sure everybody has family leave and you don't think about the small business owner, the woman who has had this cafe that has fed her family and communities and what that means to her, right? Mm-hmm. Then you you don't have a complete outcome or a complete answer to the problem. You've actually Mm -hmm. created some problems for someone else who looks like me, who actually doesn't have the benefit of having tons of access to capital to be able to pay for people to be off for six months for family leave and still run her small cafe, right? Right. Right? And so those Mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that I learned, right? Let's have progressive ideas, but let's also center the people whose ideas these are meant for. So- Mm, I don't know if I went around the bend. No, no, that was excellent. Yeah. And that really speaks to a common theme we've heard from other guests on this podcast where like community impact really starts with listening to the specific needs of each community. And I and that so much of that um, is foundational to um, marijuana matters is like core beliefs, too. So I'm really glad you brought that up. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. You were named Kira Leaves Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility in March 2020. Great time to start a new job. Very, <laughs> very exciting time. Something crazy happened in 2020. Yeah. What was it? So, yeah. So at that time, we're going to say like conversations and initiatives around social equity in the industry were not as prevalent as they are now. Did you have any initial reservations about working with a large operator? And what kind of impact did you want to create within Curaleaf and the wider industry through this role? Right. So um, it was two. I actually started two years ago yesterday. I celebrated my second anniversary oh my yesterday. God, congrats. Congrats. Uh, thank you. I made it to two years. <laughs> it's, it's like, wow. That's a lifetime um, cannabis. I, oh, man, I feel it, too. <laughs> um, so, you know, 100 percent. I. I wasn't sure if I, the activist, um, could come inside an MSO, right, mm-hmm. um, and and actually not lose myself, my identity, my credibility. Uh, but I just spent 18, two, 18 months, two years with this idea that the issues that we were trying to solve and to address were too big for just one entity, one stakeholder, right? So Marijuana Matters was built and created on this premise that at the intersection of community, industry, and government is the sweet spot. That's the answer, right? Every one of those stakeholders coming as honest brokers saying, we have this capacity, we have these levers, how can we put this in a pot and create something pretty spectacular? And we're still working to figure that out. But, you know, I wasn't sure if um, I could do that inside of Cure Leaf. Mm-hmm. But here's what I said to myself and I talked to my mentor and I uh, talked to other folks and I said, you know, I have to test the idea. I've just spent in these months in academia with this theory, right? I needed to test the idea that industry could actually do its part 
to address the collateral consequences associated with the war on drugs. And I'm glad that I did. I can, I can stand here two years later, actually in awe of what not just CureLeaf has been able to do, that the industry has started to pay attention differently, respond differently. I don't know if you guys saw the letter, letter from the former head of Parallel apologizing for the way in which they've been moving and operating. Uh, I just mm-hmm. heard that Truly launched their supplier diversity program. Mm-hmm. We have folks talking about ESG, we got mm-hmm. social impact mm-hmm. programs coming out and none of that was happening two years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, so I am proud to be a part of an industry that is trying. We got a long way to go. We still have some um, <laughs> crazy stuff in government, in industry, and people don't like to hear this also in community. But we got to keep working. And that's why I'm excited about YouTube, bringing forth and amplifying um, people and organizations that are doing something. So that's what we're here for. So I, I thank you for, you know, obviously being here on the show, too. And you did kind of mention something that I think like a lot of people just assume, like, once you make it to a certain level, you don't need a mentor. But you mentioned that you you, you still have a mentor, which I think is amazing. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I wish I'd had a mentor early on in, in my career. I would have negotiated better salaries. Mm-hmm. I would have recognized mm-hmm. uh, opportunities that weren't actually good for me uh, earlier. Uh, I would have saved myself some heartache. Um, wow. But yeah, I have a mentor now. I have a couple. And um, and I mentor a lot of people um, because I think um, it's super important that we share our knowledge, our expertise, our vulnerabilities, um, because all of that stuff is what makes us human. Um, Mm, And at the end of the day, I have a title, you know, I have some stuff that I have to do, but I'm still human. I love that. So you you heard it first, guys. It doesn't matter how far you get up. It's it's okay to have a mentor. It's great. It can only be positive. So I love yeah. that. And I found that the most impactful leaders, especially in this industry, are the ones most open to like lifelong learning and information sharing. Like they're not hoarding the insights. Like they want to give it to everyone because they understand it benefits the industry long term. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As yeah, and if, exactly. yeah, if you're if you're working in this space and you care about righting the wrongs of uh, the war on drugs, if you care about making sure that patients have access to quality, um, this this plant and quality medicine, uh, if you care about uh, social justice and you have got to understand that there's room for everyone. And we're at a point where we have to have more people in this space who are knowledgeable, who are compassionate, who are driven, who care about all aspects of this ecosystem, because, you know, we're building the regulated industry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to take a lot more people than the folks that are in it now. And it is also going to take different types of people if we want to see a diverse and inclusive industry. Um, so there's room. If you're listening and you think you might want to come on board, you have some questions, reach out to me. I'm always on LinkedIn. Well, I'm not always on LinkedIn, but I do <laughs> respond on LinkedIn. <laughs> I love that. Very accessible. Um, so while we're talking about what you're doing at Cure Relief, um, clearly you hit the ground running, which is great, um, by developing the and launching the company's CSR program rooted in good in less than a year. We recently interviewed your friend and colleague, Courtney Davis from Marijuana Matters. Hey, Courtney. 
about the organization's social equity toolkit. What role did the toolkit's guiding principles play in creating Rooted in Good and setting the initiative's KPIs? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The toolkit is what I utilize to help assess mm-hmm. what Cureleaf could do, right? Cureleaf created, we inside of Cureleaf, and, and let me just say this, um, you know, I get to talk about Rooted in Good and I get to be in front of uh, incredible people like you and have these conversations. But this work, Rooted in Good, doesn't get done without tons of people like our PR and comms team, like our social equity task force, like our diversity, equity, and inclusion steering committee, right? One of the first things that I did uh, that's in the toolkit for Marijuana Matters is convene individuals inside of the company who care about some of these issues, right? Where are our champions around environmental sustainability, right? Doesn't matter what your title is, doesn't matter how senior or how junior you are in this company. If you care about this work, we're going to situate you in a task force or a working group to tackle this issue. I love hacks. I love um, uh, task force. I love bringing people together and you take a look at a problem and everyone has an idea or can contribute to what they think the solution is. And we come out with something that's far better than just one or two people mulling it over. So that's what the toolkit actually says, right? There's some ideas of where you should get to, but how you get there should be unique to your company's experience, your capabilities, um, and never overpromise and underdeliver, right? Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm really excited about, Courtney's getting ready and the team, they're getting ready to do an, an addendum and update the toolkit. It's already Ooh. two years old. I can't believe it. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's so older than so- most celebrity marriages. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Uh, <laughs> and um, And it has... So much has happened in the industry in, in this short period of time. And there's some updates and there's some best practices. And there are some things that we know that were put in there before that perhaps can't work yet because mm-hmm. we are still dogged by federal illegal illegality of our um, of our cannabis plant. And so some of those things just are not going to be able to be executed on. But there's some other things that we've learned um, that could be in there. So Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rooted and Good is, uh, it came out of the toolkit. Love that. And it's a yeah. really good name too. Rooted and Good. Like, I don't know how you get better than that. Yeah. And and that came from a group of uh, brilliant people inside of Curely that listened to what we, what the task force people came up with. And they said, you know what? We think this is Rooted and Good. This is what being Rooted and Good is. Yeah. I think that your approach to even soliciting ideas is so reflective of um, the toolkit's emphasis on like shaping policies around lived experiences. I mean, like you have this really prestigious degree from Harvard. You could have easily just been like, all right, I know what I'm doing. I'm in charge. Like, I'm just going to like do what I think is best. But you invited people to the table who have maybe very personal experiences that informed, you know, these initiatives in ways that maybe you could not have thought of by yourself. Oh, absolutely. Right. 
when you have um, comms and PR at the table with government relations, with our marketing team, with our ops and cultivation team members, with the folks who are doing product commercialization, um, and you have folks who are in community engagement and customer retention, when you have all of those diverse ideas and perspectives at the table, ex work experiences, lived experiences, you're going to come up with some really incredible things. Like mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the things that came out of Rooting Good is this idea around national causes. So we have five national causes. One of them is food insecurity, lupus, uh, the veterans community, consumer education, ALS. And the, 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 those things came up because we have people inside of our company who are dealing with those issues or are part of those communities, right? They're not arbitrary to just, oh, let's let's work on veterans issues. We have a significant number of people who are veterans that work precarely. We have people whose family members have passed and died from ALS. We have we have employees right now who have lupus, right? Um, and so and I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. So, you know, we we said, what is what does it mean to be rooted in good for cure relief? And this is how we get to doing this work in a very intentional way. And it's and you see, in two years, we've been able to do. Uh, we're going to release a social impact report in a couple of, I think, in uh, the first part or mid-April. And you're going to see some incredible numbers. When I looked at, you know, how much money we've been able to donate to these causes and, you know, helping families actually address food insecurities in a significant way by partnering with Black farmers, right? You know, mm. food insecurity is so what we're, we're at, but yeah. the, the unintended great consequence is actually helping educate communities of color around how you can farm and how you can reclaim land. Like that wasn't our intention, wow. right? We're just addressing food insecurity in an intentional way, intersectionality, and all of these other things are happening. But that's because of our BIPOC ERG, right? So, you know, you get to have these great outcomes when you engage tons of people on the, wow. um, on the work. Yeah. I love that. And I want to focus on one specific part of Rooted in Good. So Curaleaf became one of the first multi-state operators to implement a supplier diversity program, which a lot of mainstream companies do. But what does supplier diversity look like specifically in cannabis? And how is Curaleaf both attracting and vetting potential supplier partners? Right. So um, as you said, uh, supplier diversity programs are pretty common. Um, across uh, different sectors and industries. But in cannabis specifically, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about diversifying the industry from an ownership standpoint. And we do. We need mm -hmm. to figure out what, what, what is the magic sauce state by state to get more diverse owners in the space in a successful sustainable way, right? There's some, I, I say those things for a reason. You can right. get people licensed. That doesn't mean they're going to be successful or they're going to be able to su sustain that success over a period of time. While we're figuring that out, here is this whole pot of opportunity over here called the cannabis ecosystem. We spend a lot of money trying to run our business as the largest cannabis company in the world, right? We're in 23 states. We are in, on two continents. Uh, we have 5,000 plus employees. 
And in order to make that work, we need help doing our business like communications or PR, right? So why not be intentional about offering opportunities from the underserved owners that are underserving cannabis to be a part of that as well? And so Cureleaf developed a, we have developed a two-tier program. The very first top tier is very easy, it's simple, right? We spend this much money but we're going to make sure that at least 420 vendors, business partners come from communities that are underrepresented. And for for us, that means African-Americans, people of color, women, veterans, and businesses that are owned by LGBTQ folk who identify as such, right? So that's mm-hmm. kind of how, that's the broad. But we spend a lot of time talking specifically about owners from uh, communities that have been disadvantaged by the war on drugs. The second tier that we are uh, getting ready to implement in 2023 is that there are some, um, there are some line items like our nutrients, like our lighting, because they are part of our formula to doing business, that we are unlikely to change and go to a different different vendor, right? Because mm-hmm. it impacts our bottom line and our cogs. So, and that's cost of goods, right? Um, goods and services. So in order to make sure that we're still figuring out ways to create that diverse supply chain, we've said to those folks, if your contract or if your business with Cureleaf is above $10 million on an annual basis, a percentage of that of that, that dollar amount, the value of that contract or that business relationship, we expect you to put that into a diverse supply chain. So who are your diverse suppliers? So our packaging company, when we talk to them, I mean, we're, we're a large company, so we spend a lot on packaging, right? And so um, we said, hey, we, we have this idea. We'd like for you to tell us about your supply chain. How diverse is it? Are there opportunities for you to help us accomplish our goal in creating diversity in the supply chain by diversifying your, your supply chain in an intentional way? And so this, uh, one of the things that they did was come and participate in our uh, very first supplier diversity summit that we did earlier in February. And they sat down and they talked to vendors about, here's what we are going to be purchasing. Here are the goods and services that we are forecasting over the next year. If you are selling any of those things, come talk to us because we want to make sure that we give you ample opportunity to do business with us on behalf of Curative. So that's, that to me is like, that's how you, that's how you change things. Like that's that upstream stuff that, you know, if you're intentional about it, it doesn't matter who's working where, that mm-hmm. stuff is going to make a difference long-term. That's smart. I feel like you guys have like the whole, I mean, obviously not perfected, but it seems like you guys really have considered every part of this this kind of equation, if you would say, whereas some people maybe just have part of it. It seems like you guys have kind of like figured out the, the whole equation, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And like sending that message of like, if you want to do business with us, you got to like get on the same page with us, which I think a lot of companies are little, you know, they don't draw that hard line. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And we we released our RFP for our environmental sustainability work. And one of the um, things that we graded 
the applicant on is the diversity of their management team or their leadership. And they got a chance to tell us not only quantitatively, but in a narrative form, how they intentionally show up around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it matters to us. And we're going to score you accordingly, right, on what you present. Mm, Okay. Now, um, I kind of want to go just a little bit further into employee representation. So in terms of increasing employee representation, many companies, both mainstream and cannabis, struggle with creating a workplace environment that does support and retain diverse talent, which we touched on already. How does Rooted in Goods internal DEI programs address these issues specifically? You know, Look, we got some work to do, so I'm not going to sit up and act like we got it all figured out. But we Mm -hmm. do have a strategy in place that we're executing upon. So one of the pillars of um, the the Rooted in Good programming is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the first things that we did internally was develop employee resource groups. And so we have about five or six employee resource groups. They're pretty standard, you know, BIPOC, we have a queer identified um, called Cush. Uh, there's one focused on women. Love uh, that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's one also focused on family, and um, which was unique. is one of the nice. first times I've ever heard one. But all of these were homegrown inside of the company, individuals who are participating. And uh, we did, uh, there was a DEI steering committee, and we developed a uh, survey that went out to all of the employees, and they got to vote on what are the ERGs that you wanted to see in a family-focused ERG was one of them. And what came out of that is our family leave, actually. Uh, The ERGs put that together. They did the research. They presented to HR. HR said, this is something that we can do. We're going to add it as a part of our uh, benefits packet. So when you you ask the question around, you know, what we're doing internally, we're working really hard to figure out how we're going to move the numbers in terms of representation of women in leadership, people of color in leadership, And, you know, as one of the few Black women, Black queer women in a senior executive position at CureLeaf, it's something that keeps me up at night that we haven't been able to move the needle just yet. But we're working really hard and um, I am happy to to say we're making some progress and some of that stuff is going to hopefully become public and uh, with the social impact report. So uh, we have a long way to go. And I'm not sure coding it is just at the end of the day, go get people of color, go get women, go identify how we get queer folks and then create the kind of environment where they want to stay. Um, one of the things that I uh, we did when, we, when, we, when I first came on board was allowing pronouns to be uh, added mm. to our signature, something very mm. small, but it created mm. opportunities opportunities um, to teach folks about what that is. Because some people are like, why she got she, her, her? What is that? (laughs) Is she trying to say something? (laughs) I remember I got an email from HR and they're like, some people think blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's, let's really talk about why. Right. And now it is commonplace that you can choose to have your pronouns listed. Uh, we even have uh, an opportunity for folks who are transitioning um, to be able to change their names 
uh, and be identified like in parentheses, what do you uh, want to be called? Um, so it's a, it's all a work in progress. Um, and it sometimes is easy, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah, I think it's really, um, you know, profound the level of impact Curaleaf has had just because I think maybe representation isn't where you want to be within, you know, within the industry. But I still think cannabis is way ahead of mainstream industries in terms of prioritizing these initiatives. You know, we're like, I feel like it's almost expected for especially MSOs to at least have a plan, whereas I don't know, most Fortune 500s like. Is, is there a thing? I don't know. Right. Right. It, it is just recently, I think, uh, people, because I think people get, got to have lip service for a long time. The last two years, the consumers have said lip service no more. Show mm-hmm. us your, show us the money, show us the numbers. Uh, and we're going to, um, we're going to show you with our buying power, how much yeah. we care about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So absolutely. So speaking of lip service in recent years, social equity has increasingly become more of like a marketing buzzword for a lot of companies. At this stage of growth in the industry, how would you define social equity and equitable practices for cannabis companies? Right. And so a lot of people have thought that social equity was new when we with cannabis, social equity as a framework for creating equitable outcomes, not equitable equitable access or opportunities. You have to have that, but social equity, real simple terms, is that it is a framework by which you develop, whether it's programs, policies, to create equitable outcomes, mm-hmm. right? Outcomes are super important because you can do a whole bunch of shit. I curse a lot. A whole bunch of stuff. That's (laughs) fine. A whole bunch of stuff and still not have the right outcomes, right? So social Mm -hmm. equity is by its nature is designed to create equitable outcomes, which gives you a lot of room to play with what that looks like. But it's a framework by which you actually decide to do something, right? Or you execute upon something, right? And so that is what Rooted in Good is. We used a social equity framework, which required us to convene different types of people and center the folks whom we were trying to help. So if I'm trying to get more women into cannabis, then I am inviting all kinds of people to the discussion, but I'm centering women, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm asking questions like, how does our pay impact women? How does our work environment impact women? So if, 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 if whatever the thing that you're trying to do, you have to center. So that's a framework discussion. Um, and I think people, you know, are confused about social equity isn't really, it's not a handout. It's, it is, it's not a, um, it's, 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 it's a way to think and make decisions. It's not like, oh, this is social equity. That getting someone a license is not social equity, right? Mm-hmm. It is the outcome of an activity that you did, right? If that license, if that license leads to a particular equitable outcome, in most cases, people are assigning wealth as that equitable outcome, then so be it. Then that thing is social equity, right? The framework is. 
Mm. But I mean, is there people who have licenses that are still broke as shit? Mm. That's very true. Also, quick side question, because I've read an article the other day um, on this and I want to get your feedback. There was an article that basically said, or I think it was a tweet actually, that said if a social equity applicant gets a license, but then sells that license to a white person for whatever millions of dollars, is that still social equity? So if if the outcome is to get wealth, equitable outcome, and power, and autonomy, then yes. You know, like I know the intention of social equity folks who are writing these regs is to make sure that people from said community are, are part of the industry. But you don't do that by caging an individual's right to sell his, her, or their company. Like that doesn't make sense. You don't tell, you know, cure leaf owners, you can't sell. Right. Mm-hmm. That to me, like that is not, that's not the intention of social equity. So, and, and if, if social equity is based on one person, then it's wrong. It is a framework, which is why we've seen such a dismal failure I think in some of these regulatory regimes, because they think they're not, they're not thinking about social equity as a framework. They aren't Mm. centering someone from the social equity space because they never would come up with a policy that says, oh, if you get this license and you build a reputable brand and you make it successful that you can't exit. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, really? I think it was yeah, I think it was Tamika Drew that brought that to our attention that California yeah. uh social equity license holders had no exit option because the state wouldn't let them sell. Like then you're just wild. Trapped. Wild. Isn't I don't it think crazy? a lot of people knew that. Yeah. yeah. They because they didn't use it as a framework. Yeah. Right? And I bet and those said- regulators didn't listen to the community. They didn't go out there and ask them what they wanted. And and, and if even if you didn't ask them, which you should, Chelsea, but if you centered them and said, oh, this thing that we just wrote, how will it impact them? If mm-hmm. you just if you just said that, how would this policy that prohibits an individual who has a social equity license from selling their license to whomever they want, how would that impact them? If you, and you you should get to an answer. That's probably not a policy we should implement. Mm-hmm. If you centered them, right? Yeah, I, I'm curious. Like, what would be that answer if, if we were to to ask a regulator? But while we're on the topic of regulators, <laughs> uh, social equity clearly has been a priority, especially in forthcoming adult use markets like New York and New Jersey. How does your team plan to expand rooted in goods programs in these specific Northeast key markets? Right. So, you know, we've been in conversation with a couple of um, different states about uh, expanding maybe uh, a portion of rooted in good, right? Everybody mm-hmm. likes incubators, they like um, the idea of accelerators. And I don't, I sound like I don't like them, but that that's not true. I like boot camps because M2 has a boot camp, right? 
But then when I think about this question of outcomes and you, you look at what happened in Chicago, right? Chicago ran several incubators. I think Cresco had their seed program. It had hundreds of people that went through it. And when that first tranche of licenses came out, not one of those people had gone through that. Not one, right? Terrible. Horrible. And Chicago is my city too. So I'm just yeah. like, come on, come on, Chicago. We got to do better. Come on. <laughs> yes, right. We're rooting for you. <laughs> right? We're rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> keep rooting. We And, you know, I think people, you know, they're going to keep figuring it out. And we got to be there to push and ask the right questions and provide support where appropriately. But in states like New York and uh, New Jersey, we're asking the question again, what, if we center what New Yorkers from the social equity community want and what they need, is it an incubator? Is it a partnership? Is it access to network? What What is it, right? And so that is how we're opening our conversations. What mm-hmm. here, are the, here are the things that we do well. Here are the things that we are able to actually influence or convene and or facilitate. Of mm-hmm. those things, what would help you and your community achieve the kind of outcomes that you want to see, right? I I am really hopeful that someone takes us to task and says, you know, we really care about ownership, but one of the things we want to tackle is housing inequities, right? Mm. We want to tackle health inequities. Can cannabis help us address some of the blaring issues that we have in black and brown communities around diabetes and other things, right? Mm. Like I'm, I'm waiting for that because I think that is also a valuable role that companies like Cureleaf and other industry players can play. Can we mm. have a conversation honestly about the outrageous cost to live and own a house or rent a house Ooh. in some of these places where we do business, right? Yeah. Is there a role for us to play? It doesn't, you know, I want people to expand their idea in mind about how social equity as a framework can solve some problems that have been caused by the war on drugs, housing inequity being one of them. That's a big one. Yeah. A big one. Yeah. And I want to then shift our focus to Cureleaf's home state of Massachusetts, which recently proposed reforms to its existing social equity program, uh, which includes a social a cannabis social equity trust fund and redefining the state's disproportionately impacted areas. So what do you believe has been the state's accomplishments and shortcomings so far? And do you foresee any obstacles in implementing these reforms if they're passed? Oh, man, I could say so much. But here's what I'll say. I I think people (laughs) had good intentions, right? I think people went into it with an idea that they would be able to use the regulations to right all the wrongs, right? So I think one of the biggest issues is that people went too broad, right? Instead of being saying, hey, the levers of government are good at doing these kinds of things, right? We're not going to be able to do everything in a governmental way, in a government um, capacity, right? Government does some things well and they don't do some other things well. And so public-private partnerships, I thought were a slam dunk, right? There's mm-hmm. there, there are models of how we have um, redistributed wealth in some ways using public-private partnerships. When I think about um, the SBA model of how we actually get more uh, minority-owned businesses with construction contracts, like Mm -hmm. 
the vehicle that was utilized is what many black and brown people utilize to actually build wealth for their their families and their communities. When the SBA said, hey, prime contractor, we're going to have a public-private partnership that says uh, a percentage of your contract should go to minority-owned businesses. And we're going to create a set of programs to help build the capacity of those minority-owned businesses to actually take your job in five to 10 years, right? Or compete with you as a prime contractor. That's a public-private partnership that has worked that I wish the state of Massachusetts might have thought about, might have thought about implementing. Uh, So I think some of the things that went wrong in Mass are they bit off too much at one time. Uh, I think they didn't think broadly about what already worked well in government and how do we scale or implement in cannabis. Uh, And the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, when you look at the commission and you look at the advisory council, what I saw was people who had cannabis experience were not native to Massachusetts, right? They, They didn't know mass. They might have known cannabis because they worked in California or they were in Colorado, but they didn't understand the needs of the Massachusetts community, right? And then you have people who were on the commission that didn't know cannabis, right? And here they are making decisions about, you know, uh, canopy size and uh, water irrigation when they had no real knowledge. And it just didn't, it just seemed like it was a recipe for disaster even though the best of intentions were there. Um, and I, I am hopeful that New York and New Jersey and these other states that come online is that they look inside their states. I mean, someone said, oh, you should apply for a job in New York. And I was like, well, I like the job I got. Uh, but mm-hmm. also, you know, I, I visit New York a lot and I spend a lot of time there. I probably shouldn't be the first to apply for jobs around what does it take to build social equity in the state of New York? There's some bright, smart people in New York. Let's pull those people together, wrap some supports around them. Be let, Let's not be adversarial to industry. How can we actually be supportive in helping create the kind of industry that can be inclusive, can build wealth for people and solve some of the issues that we talked about earlier? Right. And we know you you love your job at Curaleaf, but let's say thought thought exercise out of curiosity. Overnight, you become the head of Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. What initiatives would you introduce to their recent policy proposals? So one, I would actually just do what they said they were going to do initially. And that trust fund, rather than sending that money to the general ledger, you actually use those dollars to support programming, not even program, support the people who have social equity licenses, give them the ability to scale and get up to capacity quicker, right? Having people to sit on um, buildings for two years while you figure out how to get Mm. that, that, that's ridiculous. One, I take the, I take the requirement that you have to have full ownership of your building or your space before you get your license, right? I think people should be able to get provisional licenses based on a business plan, based on a team and give them the the runway to raise the money and go find a location. The the reverse is counterintuitive for people who are already financially 
deem, you know, they say you can't make more than $100,000, let's say. Well, if you don't make more than $100,000, then you don't have the likelihood that you have $100,000 to waste on holding a building while they figure out how to get you your license is pretty counterintuitive. Mm. Um, so I, I changed that. And I would also make sure that the trust, the, the fund that was created actually mm. goes to the folks that it says is going to, not the general ledger, which, you know, there are, the jury's still out, but there is some evidence out there to suggest that those, those first dollars went to the general ledger and not to the social equity community. Mm, that's real. Yeah. Well, if it me- means anything, I guess, if I was to being in the, the hiring seat, I would definitely hire you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come work with you guys and interview people and have great conversations. This seems like awesome. now the interview process is very rigorous, Khadijah. I don't know if you could keep up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Give me a chance. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, so us at High Priority, me and Chelsea, we love to kind of like look forward and and kind of like put things out there that we really want to see. So how do you hope to grow Rooted in Goods reach and impact over the next five years? And what do you hope social equity within the cannabis space will look like by then? Right. So I've, I've thought a lot about this and, you know, I don't know if we could do it in the context of Rooted in Good, but, you know, I, I get a lot of deals that come across my desk from women founders, um, founders from underrepresented groups um, that probably don't make sense for uh, a cure leaf to fund because, you know, cure leaf is in and of itself is not a, um, it is not a VC. It is a can is a vertical cannabis company. And it Mm -hmm. does, you know, we do buy companies, but in terms of funding someone else's company, that is very, very unlikely for us as a company to do. But if there were a way um, if the regs allowed it, I would love to have a rooted in good VC fund that we could raise dollars to support the rapid growth of some of these uh, businesses that are showing uh, impressive returns. And they just need the financial backing and perhaps maybe a distribution deal, or mm-hmm. maybe they need uh, some expertise on their board to you know, flush out how they scale. Like I, I, I foresee tons of brands coming online. And if we had a funding, a capital mechanism that allowed for them to actually scale and get up and not get up and running because these will already be up and running, but will allow for them to accelerate their growth. I, I, I think that would be fascinating to do. I would love to do that inside of Cureleaf or out of Cureleaf to, to, you know, people who need 50000 or $100,000 uh, and they're going out and they're giving up like 20% of their their company for $100,000, that that hurts my feelings. Sure. I would love to be able to, um, you know, invest in some of these incredible projects, get folks what they need, take a small percentage of equity just so that you could reinvest. It isn't about exiting. It's about, oh, if I take 2% equity and this, this is going to net me a return to continue pushing money back out. And that is, you know, we just have this secular, the fund is just for, you know, no one's ever exiting. We're simply reinvesting those dollars continuously. Like 
I would love to somebody do that. I know it's it's a wish, but you have to. I believe in the power of manifestation. I mean, so many mainstream companies have venture arms. It is totally within the realm of possibility. Right. For sure. So you you heard it first here, guys. Khadija's going to do this and we're going to be a part of it. So it's cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be sourcing deals together. Right. We're do it. I love That's right. it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Helping out the community one yeah. cure relief dollar at a time. Um, <laughs> all right. Now we are done with the serious part. Now let's get into the fun stuff. So this all is right. what we like to call. I got five on it. We're going to ask okay. you five hard-hitting questions, and you just got to okay. rapid fire. Okay, Khadija? Okay. 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 First one. If you could infuse cannabis into any food or drink, what would it be? Um, Ice cubes. I eat ice all the time. And ice you can put, cube. think about it. You can put ice cubes in anything. Don't laugh at me, Chelsea, but I'm here. You <laughs> You're want, right. You no, she's have, right. Yeah. I, I have iron issues, so I'm always crunching ice. Um, so if I had to infuse it, yeah, I'd, I'd like a, that. I'd be happy all day. I mean, here That's I am putting just putting select squeeze into my stuff, but I could just be using infused ice. Yes, <laughs> just put put it in the water and then put the yeah. tray in the in the freezer. Yeah. Boom. Yes, yeah. CC purely R and D. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> make that happen. I love that. Um, all right. Next question. What is your ideal setting to enjoy cannabis? Oh, that's easy. Sunset, uh, deck, nice, mm. nice, tightly rolled joint. Do you that's have a answer. preferred supplier or brand or strain or whatever? So right now I'm all over Be Noble. Um, and I love rolling bouquet papers. I'm obsessed mm. with those papers. I if I get a pre-roll, I literally take the flower out of the pre-roll Ooh. and put it in side of the rolling bouquet papers. They're so smooth, they burn so nice, and they they roll up really nice. Some papers Ooh. tear, yeah, you know, very easily. Uh-huh. This, yeah. So that's that's my that. preferred way to consume. I consume other ways, but you know, I'm an OG, I'm an OG smoker. So there ain't nothing wrong with that for sure. Um, next question. What is your biggest cannabis related pet peeve? Pet peeve. Well, you know what? The idea that, um, anytime someone talks about people consuming, they automatically think that everybody's a smoker, right? And not everyone is a smoker. There are tons of people in my network that consume and they don't smoke. Right. Uh, it's a pet peeve. You're going to be out here smoking. I don't want to, I don't want uh, that in my my uh, in my neighborhood, it's just gonna be smoking. I'm like, introduce yourself to new cannabis, right? Smoking mm-hmm. is smokables is a part of it, but there are so many ways to consume cannabis that don't involve a lighter. Very true. Yeah, educate yourself, people. Mm-hmm. It's it. 2022. You can Absolutely. drink your cannabis. You can eat it. Everything. Live, laugh, love. <laughs> yeah, in some places in the world, you can even uh, there are like nasal sprays. Ooh, absolutely. Look at that. All right. Suppositories. I'm just Oh yeah. I we've heard sure, of those. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not there yet, but one one day. It's on Chelsea, my list. get there. Tell me and then call me and be like, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay. If you could smoke with any celebrity dead or alive, who would it be and why? 
Um, I already have with one of my favorite people, and that's Fab Five Freddy. That's a that's oh, a whole nice. Maybe it's amazing. A Shout out to Fab Five. He's super <laughs> yeah. cool. Oh, he, oh, he is. I mean, that brother's like history, culture, just walking. Everything. I, I never have a bad time when I'm in his presence. And I learn something all the time. I'm sure. Has he ever told you like any crazy fun stories about the people he's interviewed in the past? People people he's interviewed, people, I mean, just nights. I mean, just even listening to him talk, like to be in a setting where he's talking with other people that he's hung out with, there's a story, you know, he just got interviewed on Killer Mike's podcast. If you guys haven't had a chance to watch it. I mean, it's like, that is what it's like being with him all the time. You know, these incredible stories. You're like, damn. Yeah. He's a part of Burning Man. People don't even know that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's a burner? Would have never thought. Oh, a burner, burner. He's that. He about that life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Chelsea. We got to get him and Mitch together. Oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) Our our CFO is big on Burning Man. Oh, (laughs) huge. Uh, Last question. Um, What's the one rule you set for yourself when you get high? And if you don't have one, what's one rule you probably should set for yourself? Um. Stay in the house. <laughs> Good. So it's very simple. Very simple. It, Just stay in the it's house. It's rare that uh, it's a rare occasion where I'm going to be engaging in uh, a smoking situation. Now I might have squeeze out and brunch, right? That's but the, the beauty of squeeze is that it gives me that perfect five meds, and I know mm-hmm. how to tolerate that. You know, with a different strand or something like that. And I, and I, you know, I, I smoke a whole joint and I roll it thin and nice and tight. And so mm-hmm. I want to be in the house. And I just want to be in the house. That's what mm-hmm. I like. That's, That's my rule. Like we like a controlled environment. Yeah. Easy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of that question when I broke my own rule of not touching the stove when I'm high because I wanted to make <laughs> eggs at two in the morning and I was like and I was like this should be a high priority question because I want to know what people's weird rules are and maybe Chelsea, what is, what is the, their go-to food when they're hot I know yours is eggs at 2 a.m <laughs> and mine is whatever is near me <laughs> I like a, I like a wet snack because I get caught in those <laughs> yes That's all great. right okay I like that yeah. So ice cube for our, handy. that's true. That's true. <laughs> I have, I have also eaten ice when I'm high. Um, for our inquiring listeners, where can they find you and Kira Lee's? If they want to slide into your DMs, ask you any questions, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. So people can definitely reach out to me there. You know, Twitter, I don't know how to check messages on Twitter, but if they tag me in something, <laughs> you know, but I also check Twitter like every two or three days. But LinkedIn, I'm on probably um, every other day. I, you know, I'm there. Good information is there. And it's, it's more cannabis friendly than the other social media sites. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's true, actually. She's right. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people getting like their posts flag for cannabis yeah. related news versus right. on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatnot. So. There you have it. Well, thank you, Miss Khadija Trouble. It's been an honor having you on High Priority today. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Great questions, by the way. Thanks again for listening to High Priority. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Special thanks to Antoine Dry, Donald Edwards, and Jim Pryor from Dirty Soap Entertainment for our intro music. To learn more about our show and parent company, Matteo Communications, head on over to our website at matteo.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-O.com. 